I invite you to turn with me to the passage that Callum read um, for us earlier. Uh, I think you'll see it there on the screen behind me. We're in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be studying uh, verses 67 to 79. As you turn that up, um, you'll not mind me uh, doing this, but I, I want to say thanks to, uh, to uh, the leaders of Sunday School for, for um, well, for the choir. It was brilliant, wasn't it? I, and I'm glad that uh, we showed our appreciation earlier, and I want you to know that it's, it's heartfelt. And boys and girls too, I don't know if there are any other boys and girls still left in here, but I want to thank you too. Um, it takes a lot of courage coming up, coming up here. Um, it takes a lot of courage to sing, but um, it's a real blessing uh, what you've just done for us. It's, uh, we believe that you're part of our family, and whenever we hear you sing the words of God, the truths of the Bible, it fills our hearts with joy. Um, and it's also a great reminder, you've reminded us boys and girls, of God's faithfulness to us. He's promised to look after you, and it's, it's very encouraging for us to see that promise partly fulfilled uh, today. So thank you very much, boys and girls. Yes, I don't know if you're here, but we, you can pass it on uh, to them. We're going to be studying this uh, passage here. Uh, I hope you have it open. Uh, Luke chapter 1, 67, Zechariah's song. But before we, we come to this together, study it together, let me uh, pray for us. Because we're going to be looking at God's Word, and we need His help, His Holy Spirit, uh, to understand it. So let's uh, pray to Him. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Your Word tells us that Your Word is a lamp to our feet, directing our path, guiding our way. And we thank You, Heavenly Father, that it indeed does that. It doesn't just direct us through this world or towards heaven but it directs us to the light of the world, the one who came into darkness, who shone in our darkness, the one who brings salvation, redemption, and rescue. Tonight it is our prayer that as we study your word, this prophecy, that we would come to see your son, Jesus Christ, that we would come to know him more, and that we would come to live for him with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. Amen. Uh, Tonight, um, we're continuing our short series. And this is what I've I've called uh, our short series. I've called it Responding to What God Has Done. It's not Zechariah's Zechariah's Song. It should be a typo there, but it is also pertaining to Zechariah's Son. But responding to what God has done. And that is because, the reason I'm calling it this is because this Sunday and next Sunday, the two weeks leading up to Christmas, you'll know by now that we're looking at these four songs that are found at the start of Luke's Gospel. And each song, as you've heard this morning, you'll hear tonight, and you'll hear next Sunday, is a response, a response to something God has done. And tonight, we're looking at Zechariah's song, which, as you hopefully picked up from earlier in Callum's reading, from verses 57 to 66, is given by this man, Zechariah, on the occasion of the birth and circumcision of his son. But as we look at his song, these verses, we're going to see something surprising about them. We're going to see that they're not about his son at all but rather they're about someone else. We're going to see how Zechariah, on the occasion of 
the birth of his son, the circumcision of his son, he sings about God's promised king. He sings about the Christ. And as we look at these verses tonight, we're going to see that he tells us that the king, the Christ, is coming and that he is coming soon. Now, the reason we're studying this this evening, this Sunday, and next Sunday is, is not simply because Alistair and I feel like we need to have something Christmassy to talk about at this time of year, but because we believe and the church believes that the coming of the Christ is good news. And it's not just good news for Christmas or in the weeks leading up to Christmas, but it is good news for all of life. And so you're maybe sitting here this evening and it's warm. You've had a long day. You maybe were here to see the kids and now that they've done their part, you're maybe ready to switch off. I encourage you to listen. I encourage you to hear what Zechariah has to say about this king. Because, well, we need him. We're going to see tonight that we're going to see or remember that tonight that we need the Savior because we live in a world that is broken. That even in this time of joy and revelry, even with the distraction of Christmas, we need to remember, we need to see that a Savior has come. A Savior has come. And so we're going to look at this song of Zechariah and we're going to see two things. I've mentioned them already. We're going to see that the Christ is coming. This is what Zechariah tells us. And that the Christ is coming soon. If you're taking notes, don't worry, I'll be putting these points up as we go along. And, and the first of which is, the Christ is coming soon. And you'll see there in uh, the theme, what we're aiming for in this point is that we're going to see from these verses, 67 to 75, that Zechariah is telling us that God has sent his king, his Christ, to save his people. Like I said there, we're going to see this from verses 67 to 75, but, but, but let's get into some of the verses and have a look at what they say in detail. And I hopefully you'll agree that this is what these verses are about. For instance, look with me uh, right into the middle, right into the heart of this section, where it tells us in verse 69 that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. David here is referring to King David. And so in other words, this is telling us that God has sent us a king. Then in verses 72 and 73, see what it tells us there? He says that he is the one that God has promised to Abraham and to the patriarchs. In other words, God has sent the promised king. And finally, when we look at the whole section, 68 to 74, we see that this promised king is the one who will save God's people. Skim your eyes over those verses because you will see three times that this is the case. Three times we're told that this promised king has been sent to save God's people. It begins with it right away, doesn't it? In verse 68, Zechariah says, Praise to the Lord. Praise to the God of Israel. Why? Because he has come to redeem his people. Then in verse 71, we see that he raised up this horn of salvation. Why? To save us from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. And then in verse 74, we see it said again. 
the king is described as the one who will come to rescue God's people from their enemies. I think Zechariah uses these three different words here, not necessarily to tell us different aspects of how the king will save us, and although they do describe different aspects of how the king will save us, but to hammer home the point, to tell us in the poetic way that, that prophecy has often written, that God has sent his promised king, the Christ, and that he is being sent to save God's people from their enemies. And this is why we call this Zechariah's hymn. This sharp eyed of you will have noticed in 67 that the word song isn't used. It talks about the prophecy. But we know that whenever we read these words, that that this is is a a prophecy of praise. It's a a hymn. It's a song. it's, It's jubilant. And the reason that we say this is because when we look at this promise, these things that Zechariah is telling us in the first half of his prophecy... They're a hymn of praise because this is the exact thing that Zechariah and all of God's people have been waiting for centuries for God to do. This is the culmination of promises that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. If you're familiar with your Bible, you you will know this. You will know that ever since man's eviction from the Garden of Eden, there's been the search for the one who would, who would reverse the effects of the fall. We talk about it in church sometimes as the search for the serpent crusher you know, that pertains to that promise in Genesis 3.15. And you'll know that, that from uh, that eviction from the Garden of Eden, there's just been this uh, sort of constant expectation. Is this the next guy? Is this the Christ? Is this the Savior? But you'll know... You know that the Bible doesn't read like a story, like a, it doesn't read well for the people involved in it. And actually, what we read is individual after individual feel at leading God's people, at redeeming them, at saving them, and at rescuing them. Actually, we see the kingdom of Israel itself, even though it reaches the heights of, of the kingdom and David's time, shortly after. God's people are sent into exile. It's been a long road for God's people. It's been a long wait. Something I think we struggle to comprehend what that means. And it's very hard for us to get our minds into that. What it means to be stateless. What it means to be occupied. What it means to have our our identity questioned. What it means to live by promises not yet fulfilled. But here it is. Here is the moment when all of those promises, all of those prophets, all of their prophecies, all the things that God has said in the Old Testament, they're coming true. God is finally sending his promised king. And this promised king is coming to save his people. It's not just from their enemies, as it states there, but it is from the enemy. It's from the the consequences of the fall. Right back in Genesis 3.15, God's people, God's king is going to save God's people from the curse of sin, from the brokenness of this world, and from the threat of the devil. But you know, this is only the first half of what this king will do. 
that's only the, sort of the, the first thing he will do is save us from enemies. It's not, the, it's not the full thing he will do. And we look back and we'll see, we see as we look at the last two verses in, in this sort of subsection, we see that not only has he come to save us from our enemies, but he has been sent to save us for service. Do you see that there in verses 74 and 75? We're told that he has come to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him, to serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, this is the full gospel. This is the full picture. This is what we call the good news of the gospel. And this is the good news of Christmas. This is what we celebrate, not just at this time of year, but every Sunday, the fact that God has sent his promised king into this world to save his people from their enemies, but also that he sent his promised king into this world to restore God's people's relationship with God. And he restores our relationship with our God so that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness forever. Let me explain to you why this is such good news. It is good news because it gets to the very heart of what it means to be a human. It gets to the very heart of what it means to be a human. You see, we were made to be in a relationship with God. That's what we're created for. And if you know your Bibles, you will know that. You'll also know that it is because of sin that our relationship with God is broken. It's because of sin that we were expelled from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And since then, all of humankind has been left unsatisfied. That's why the world is the way it is. Because we don't live in God's presence. And outside of communion with him, we cannot find joy. Outside of communion with him, we cannot find contentment. Outside of communion with him, we cannot find satisfaction. Although we might look, although we might search, we cannot find it anywhere else but in a restored relationship with God. It's one of the things that annoys me about the secular Christmas. It promises so much, doesn't it? Magic and memories, food and festivities, happiness and harmony. I think that's what the Christmas cards are telling us, isn't that right? Those scenes. In fact, Dylan put up a scene in a sort of perfect Christmas house this morning, didn't he? You and I know it never delivers. Never delivers. And even if it does deliver, it's only for a short while. It doesn't truly satisfy us. That's what this passage is telling us, that that it cannot satisfy, that the only one that can satisfy, satisfy us is King Jesus, God's promised King. And say to my point that the Christ is coming, you'll see there, and you, you might have wondered this because we know that this is a passage about Christmas, and if you know your Christmas story well, you know, well, actually, that the whole point of Christmas is that the Christ has already come. But this is because this is what Zachariah sees. This is his perspective. You'll actually pick up in verse 68. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. Zachariah believes that the Christ has already come. We know that if you look 
even there in your Bibles, you see that he's not actually born until chapter 2. But we know he has come. We saw this morning that whenever he was in the womb of his mother, Mary, that he caused John, who was in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, to jump. But you see, Zechariah knows. Zechariah knows that this baby that it is in was at the cousin of his wife's womb. He is this king. He knows that he is going to grow up to be the one to save God's people. To save God's people from the curse of sin, from the threat of the devil, from the brokenness of this world. And he is going to be the one to restore God's people to their God. Christ was coming for Zechariah, but for us, Christ has come. Jesus Christ, that's why we call him Jesus Christ. And we celebrate his birth because he is this king, the king who has come to save us. Well, let's see how we need to respond to this king. And we're going to see this in our second point. We see that the Christ is coming to you. And you'll see this, you'll see there in the theme uh, to this point is that, that God wants his people to accept his king. And we see this in the remainder of uh, Zechariah's song, Zechariah's prophecy in verses 76 to 79. And there you'll see that Zechariah is promising or prophesying that the Christ is coming soon. And, and, and you'll see this when you look at these verses, that um, he, he does this by turning his attention to his son. And you'll see there that he declares that his son is going to prepare the way for the Christ. We see this, for instance, in verse 76. See what he says there? He says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. And you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. If you look down there at this verse, I'm sure you'll agree with me that what's so remarkable about it is that this verse and the ones that follow it are, are still about the Christ. It's true, isn't it? I mean, it does. He is talking to his son, but he's really only talking to his son and how he relates to the Christ. Now, I don't know how you think about that or, or what you think about that, but perhaps you think it's quite odd. And it, it, it is odd. It, it is odd. It's odd for Zechariah on the occasion of the birth of his son to sing about the Christ. But to understand why it is the case, we need to remind ourselves of the context. What is the context? Well, let's, let's bring ourselves up to speed. Well, what's going on? Well, we kind of jumped ahead, haven't we, in the story of Luke. Well, Luke begins. Luke actually begins with the appearance of an angel. And the angel appears to Zechariah to tell him that his wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a, have a son and that her son would live in service to God. Now, you can see in chapter 1, verse 36, the important thing about Elizabeth. See what it says there in chapter 1, verse 36? It says, Elizabeth is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. You see, Elizabeth was not only barren, but she was past childbearing age. And so Luke tells us that when Zechariah hears this, the angel telling him that his wife is going to have a child, he just he doesn't believe her. And as a result, he is struck dumb. But as we read at the beginning of our, our earlier in our service of worship, before this passage, on the day of circumcision, what happens? 
All the relatives, all the neighbors say, this child is to be called Zechariah after after his father. But then, no, in verse 63, Zechariah takes a writing tablet and he says his name is John. It's only then that he regains the, the use of his tongue. And what does he do? Well, he, he commences this song. Now, again, I admit on the face of it, it might seem that because of this miraculous birth, Zechariah might still want to sing about his son. I mean, after all, he's a miracle. I mean, they'd waited a long time to have children, then lo and behold, here he has one. But the reality is, all of these things, all of this context that Luke carefully gives us, point to a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is that the birth of his son means that the Christ is coming soon. And we know this for two reasons. We know probably most clearly because the angel tells us so. The angel tells uh, Zechariah in chapter 1 that this, the son that he is going to have is going to be a forerunner for the Christ. But we also know it because this story mirrors so many Old Testament stories. Old Testament stories where, where, where barren, aged women produce children that act as forerunners to the king. One clear example comes to mind, as we studied it not that long ago as the church. We studied it in 1 Samuel. Perhaps you remember how 1 Samuel begins. It begins with Hannah in the temple. Barren. But eventually she is given a son. And where does the son go to work? Well, he's dedicated to the Lord and a lifetime of service to him. And who is this son? Samuel. And who does Samuel for or go before? Well, he anoints the king, doesn't he? God's chosen king, King David. And so you see, Zechariah recognizes us. He sees the signs around him. He knows that something is happening and it is momentous. And it prompts him to praise. This is why he says what he says in verses 76 to 79. He is saying that that you, my child, you are going to go before the king and prepare the ground. You are going, you mean, your existence means that this great promised king is finally coming. Now, we obviously, we know that this child is John the Baptist and we know that the other child is Jesus Christ. We know all these things. But why did Jesus need someone to go before him? It's a question that's troubled me um, all week, I must admit. I mean, when we think about what we know about Jesus, you think when Jesus arrived, that he had all the power and authority of God, that the way he spoke, that the miracles he had. Why did Jesus need a forerunner? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to get our minds around. What I think the reason that Jesus needs a forerunner is said there. This way it uses this language of 79 about causing the light to shine in darkness, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That because, and I think Zachariah knew this, that because unless, that because like the people in his, let me get this right, this is tricky, because people are quick to overlook Jesus. And we know that, don't we? We're quick to overlook the Christ. And you read on in Luke's gospel, and that's what happens. People, they don't understand who he is. They don't want to know what he has to say. And you'll know that actually, 
they end up opposing him. You see, the people, they wanted a Christ, didn't they? They wanted someone to come and save them from their enemies. They wanted someone to come and restore their relationship with God. But the reality is when Jesus told them what that looked like, what that meant, well, they rejected him, didn't they? And you see, the problem is still the same today, isn't it? That we can still misunderstand Jesus. We've just studied the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, how tricky was some of that stuff? It's easy, isn't it, to misinterpret what Jesus says, what he is about, what he wants. Some of us can even look, overlook him. And some of us can even oppose him. But you see my point? God wants us to accept his king. And so just like John the Baptist so now today, he sends people before him to prepare our hearts to know who he is so that we would accept him. I think Christmas is a great, uh, another great illustration for this, isn't it? Christmas is probably one of the greatest sort of distractions from Christianity ever. It's one of the sort of great ironies of Christmas, isn't it? It, well, it's even, well, we're even encouraged not to call it Christmas in some instances, aren't we? What have we got? We've got winter festivals. We've got seasons greetings on our Christmas cards. It's true, isn't it? The world wants to distract us. It wants to draw our attention away from the Christ. Actually, it's interesting. I'll mention this morning that we think of our Christmas hymns. We don't think necessarily of these hymns. And that's because the world has its whole catalog of Christmas hymns. And I'm sure if we were to draw up our top five Christmas pop songs or songs, it'd be interesting to go through them to see how much Jesus is really mentioned. But it's not just the world, isn't it? It's not just the world that distracts us at this time of year. It's us too, isn't it? I mean, how many of us are just so tired at this time of year that it's, it's hard? It's hard to spend time thinking about the gospel. How many of us right now even are just thinking, I have so much to do for next week. Christmas is such a distraction. The secular Christmas. It takes up so much of our time. I'm not saying that's a waste of time. I'm not saying it's bad. And I'm saying if we're not careful, we can overlook Jesus. We can misunderstand what Christmas is about. And if we're really not careful, we can end up opposing him. And so we need to remember what Christmas is about. We need to listen to the Bible and what it teaches us about what Christmas is about. We need to know our prophets go back and see what they have to tell us about Jesus, about how he is the fulfillment of so many promises written down for over centuries. And what Zachariah is telling us here, that only he, he and he alone, is the one who can save us from our sin from this brokenness of this world, from the threat of the devil. And only he can restore a relationship with God and bring us true joy and true contentment and true satisfaction. This is Zechariah's song. It is a song in response to what God has done. And yes, he sings it at perhaps one of the most momentous times in his life. His son has just been born. He has just been circumcised. But yet, who does Zechariah sing about? He sings about Jesus Christ. Some of us are looking forward to Christmas. I'm looking forward to Christmas. We love Christmas. Great time of the year. 
and we can get caught up. But Zechariah, he gives us a really good model, doesn't he? He says, even in the most special times of our life, we are to remember Jesus. We are to sing about him, talk about him, trust in him. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that we would remember what Christmas is truly all about. It's what I pray what we would tell our children, not just in our words, but in our actions too, and that all the world would know where our priorities lie in these next couple of weeks. They lie not in season's greetings, but in praising the promised king, the king who has come, the king who God has sent people before us, God's word, to prepare our hearts to accept him. Well, let me do that for you now. Let me pray in this regard, and then we'll respond to God's words in praise. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us every word of your scriptures, that none of them, none of the pages or words or sentences are wasted, but they all tell us more about your son, Jesus Christ, and they all tell us more about your faithfulness to us. And we pray for us. We pray for your people at this time. We pray for us in a world that wants to distract us, a world that wants to oppose Jesus that we would return to your word, that we would read these prophets, that we would know them, and that when we look to Jesus, we see that how much he fulfills. We thank you that you sent him to save us from our sins and from this broken world and from the devil. And we thank you that in him we have a restored relationship with you. And I pray this Christmas that that is what we would be praising you for and living for you. We pray these things for his name's sake and for his glory. Amen.